Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products. Hi, Parak. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? Oh, great. You're in Singapore, right? I am a, a steamy, sweltering night in Singapore. How do you find the Singapore 50 anniversary celebrations? It was great. You know, I think if you think about the whole year as a preparation for that moment, and also the fact, the, the sad fact of Lee Kuan Yew's passing, it's really the last eight months as a whole that has uh, taken together been a comprehensively very successful and honorable celebration of the country, of, of Lee Kuan Yew's legacy, all taken together. And I think the, the parade and the festivities last weekend really capped it off very nicely. I was so pleased to have been in the country and to have taken my kids to go around and see all the events and, uh, and the fireworks. So it was just great. And I'm talking to Parak Khanna, co-founder and CEO of Factotum Agency, which is a content branding agency. He's also a senior research fellow in the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy and a global contributor to CNN. So you have been really uh, uh, one of the few people that I really want to talk to. You are a global strategist, world traveling, and also author of several interesting books. One of them is called Hybrid Reality. Given that you came from the United States, maybe tell me, how did you get started in this think about global strategy and particularly focusing on international relations? Well, actually, the story would go back to before I ever landed in the United States because I was really born traveling, you know, not in a cliched sense, but in a very matter-of-fact sense uh, that I was born in India. Then my family moved to the United Arab Emirates, so I spent my childhood in Abu Dhabi. But my parents just before that had been living in uh, in Sudan for years. Uh, my brother was born there, so my father was working all across Africa and the Middle East. Then after living in uh, Abu Dhabi, we moved to New York. I spent part of high school in Germany shortly after the Berlin Wall fell. And I would say the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, uh, as it might have been for many people, was a real awakening. For me, I was just in middle school at the time, but my uh, parents took me straight to Berlin, me and my brother, on a family holiday in order to kind of witness firsthand uh, the remnants of uh, the Berlin Wall and to see kind of the reunified German society. And it was obviously a very memorable moment for a 12-year-old. So I would say since that time, I was infected with the bug of, um, of geopolitics. So... To this day, you know, I consider that holiday a great decision on my parents' part. And then a couple of years later, I went to go live in Germany and completed high school in Germany and have a, you know, earn a sort of an Abitur, which is a German high school degree. And I still to this day think about that decision, you know, from when I was 15 years old as probably the, the, the major spark that set off everything that's come since. So whether it's studying at Georgetown in the School of Foreign Service, or whether it's uh, the PhD I did in international relations, or the think tanks I've worked for. I served briefly in the United States military. You know, everything I've done, somehow you can trace back to 
just those traveling experiences from my teenage years. And you also served the U.S. National Intelligence Council Global Trends 2030 program and also been in the foreign policy advisory group to then candidate now President Barack Obama for president's campaign. So what are your learnings from those roles and how do you perceive international relations as a whole? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the uh, the time at which I participated in the uh, foreign policy advisory group for the Obama campaign, I had just come back uh, from serving in Iraq and Afghanistan with uh, U.S. Special Operations Forces as an advisor, uh, geopolitical advisor. So my views on the long-term trajectory, you know, for the Middle East and for Central Asia were very pessimistic. So that was part of the perspective that I was lending. But along the way, I had just finished uh, my first book, which was really about long-range geopolitical issues, about great power, superpower dynamics. So that got me really working on scenarios, and and uh, and and that's the reason why I began to do more work with the National Intelligence Council in its consultations on mega trends. So things like multipolar world, things like urbanization things like the shift of economic power and the diffusion of economic power. So all of those sorts of issues are ones that I've written a lot about. And and in these various roles, advising either decision makers or the analytical community in the U.S. government, I found that they value the perspective of someone who is no longer in Washington, you know, someone who spends basically his entire life now outside of Washington and traveling and kind of getting a ground eye view. I hope that I've made some useful contributions to those processes, but more importantly, the sum total of them, especially when you look at the Global Trends 2030 report, is, you know, the most nuanced assessment in the open source kind of world that is publicly available and and distributed and debated. So I think that it's a very, very good discussion document as to what the future will look like. And I, you know, on a daily basis, am, am someone who's obsessed with precisely that question. How can we more accurately understand what the geopolitical and technological and economic landscape of the future is going to be? And what are the things that point in one direction versus in another direction? And you have this little focus in technology I've seen because I've been to your blog and I've also read one of your earlier books, which was called Hybrid Reality, about thriving in this emerging human technology civilization. How do you perceive technology as part of that learnings in looking at geopolitical trends? Mm -hmm. You know, one of the terms that was coined in that uh, little book was geotechnology. You know, is the idea that whereas a lot of people in the political science field talk about geopolitics and geoeconomics, in fact, geotechnology should really be seen as a driver of the balance of power. And uh, we argued there that the balance of innovation is what determines the balance of power. That's not actually new. That's quite historically grounded. But the fact is that people in this narrow field of international relations tend to not be well-schooled in either economics or technology. So the goal there was to bring technology robustly into the conversation, not just to focus on specific technologies, but the policies around technology. So we looked very closely at China's new five-year plans, and those five-year plans very concretely emphasize the absorption and investment of cutting-edge technologies, whether it's advanced manufacturing, biotechnology, information technology, and so forth. 
in order to stimulate growth and self-sufficiency in key technological areas. And so I think of technology as intensely geopolitical. So most people in the technology field tend to not focus on geopolitics. Most people in the geopolitical field tend to not focus on technology. And my explicit objective was to you know, find a vocabulary and a method for bringing those two together. So you have been a globe trotter from UAE to Germany to US to Singapore. So you moved to Asia. Why? Well, in fact, Asia is definitely the terminus stop for us. So you'll be pleased to know we'll always be in the same time zone, Bernard, you and I, <laughs> because we have, we have decided that this is the end of history. I, I, of course, I use that phrase very consciously as a sort of uh, a, a antidote to the original usage of the term, which was about uh, the triumph of Western liberal democracy. But we, we lived in... Um, you know, obviously, uh, both my wife and I and as a family were very comfortable living around the world, even though, you know, we'd been in, in America for the longest period of time, but we're both uh, foreigners in some ways. We're permanent immigrants, I like to say, or permanent migrants. But we were in the U in the UK, actually, uh, for our academic work and then decided that it was time to, having been in the, in the US and then in Europe, that it was time to go, quote unquote, back to Asia, you know, being both Asian, but to be in a place that that really supported our, our intellectual and professional interests, uh, you know, a, a place that is a smart city, you know, uh, because that's obviously a very, very important concern uh, for us intellectually in this, uh, to look at urbanization, to look at governance in a world of devolution. Devolution is a very important topic in my work. So the, the sort of rise of municipal authorities and governance. And so Singapore being a city state island, being a smart city, being a, a world-leading academic hub and, and admirable in so many other ways was actually an extremely logical and obvious choice for us. As you know, a lot of people historically don't come to Singapore so much voluntarily because uh, if they're foreigners, they're expats sent by employers. But we are, I suppose, uh, different in that sense. But I think we're, we're part of uh, what is obviously a growing trend, which is uh, foreigners who very much voluntarily decide that Singapore is the place that they want to be. And now we're, we've been here for about three years and um, you know, we think we're just getting started. And you've started Factotum. And what does it do and how does it help companies out here in Asia? Mm -hmm. Well, Factotum is very much a global company. It mm -hmm. grew out of a, a partnership with the Economist Group out of New York and London, um, working on some of the biggest uh, content strategy campaigns in, in the world, uh, such as General Electric's um, and GE's campaign called Look Ahead. And so what Factotum does is take companies that, that certainly do excellent things, have great ideas, are innovative, have good policies who are effective, but help them tell their story, um, you know, help them devise uh, sort of, you know, messaging, um, but also help them find their intellectual niche, as it were. And that's what thought leadership is, is all about, is translating what, you've, what you're already doing and what you've already learned from your own corporate experience, from your own investments, from your own trial and error, um, into useful lessons and insights. So we help uh, companies do that now, uh, not just GE, but, but many, many others. And, uh, it, you know, whether it's Asian, whether it's Western, whether it is a government agency or a private company, you know, we're, we're actually completely agnostic about that. You know, we're looking for the kinds of companies that have um, 
a real track record of, of, of productive and interesting output that really needs to be translated for, for the large scale. You have done some very interesting case studies, particularly the one with General Electric. I think you have also delivered quite a lot of value in terms of talking about the um, sustainable economy, etc. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, these are trends that affect, uh, there are, you know, amongst in the universe of trends, there are some that clearly are so disruptive that they affect all sectors. You know, one of the things that we do in the context of GE Look Ahead, or in our in our own research and writing, such as uh, what, what I've done and what my wife has done, is really looking at things like the sharing economy, which of course now is, uh, you know, widely recognized as a big trend. But we try not to just regurgitate the data. Right. So, you know, uh, Uber went from X valuation to Y valuation. Right. It's about what new ecosystems are created for people to share their skills, to to boost their labor productivity, to become viable economic entities. What does it do to taxation? What does it do to government services? These deeper, you know, more complicated questions we try to build scenarios around and advise clients about. So, you know, the sharing economy is certainly one of those critical issues. So I'm coming to the Asia landscape, and I think you have a very different perspective in terms of looking at this landscape. I think the first probably is to take a look at kind of the political business and logistics landscape in Asia in what you term as mapping the networks. What is your perspective on that landscape? Well, the operative word there really is the mapping, because a lot of people who want to look at Asian integration and development focus so much on the political level and the diplomatic level. They're always waiting to see, did the Asian free trade area get signed? Is the ASEAN economic community coming into force? What is the state of the regional comprehensive economic partnership and things like this? I don't agree with that. My academic work, I've looked at the sort of uh, evolution of diplomatic systems. And what I have found is that there is a perpetual evolution. You cannot point to uh, this moment and say ASEAN has failed or ASEAN has succeeded. You cannot compare it to Europe and say it has failed or it has succeeded. It's always emerging. So to me, the mapping is very important because if you look at the connectivity of infrastructure, of supply chains, of communications across Asia, you see a clear trend towards integration, even if all the institutions fail. And so it's important to have a balanced perspective about what one is is measuring. So I'm actually very optimistic about ASEAN, where even if they cannot come together when it comes to geopolitical relations with China and a whole variety of other areas, even if they can't you know, lift their preferential treatment of domestic sectors and economic liberalization, still there is a clear, clear trend towards uh, integration that, that I see is being very uh, pronounced. So is Asia highly fragmented? And how does these economies and networks operate in such a highly fragmented landscape? Well, so Asia is, by its very political geography and, and linguistic geography and cultural and other sorts of geographies, quite fragmented, of course. it's uh, Even if it were not a post-colonial region of these specific nations today, there are organic cultural geographies and many of them in Asia. So there's a great diversity of Asia that prevents it from being a sort of, you know, European club 
the way that the EU sort of has become, though even there, of course, there are plenty of uh, difficulties. So yes, Asia is, is fragmented and will probably always be fragmented in some dimension or the other. That said, again, integration is all about comparative advantages and complementarities. It is not necessarily held back simply because there is diversity. So I think that Asia is doing as well as it can to overcome diversity because of the complementarities that are there. You have the financial centers, you have the agricultural economies, you have the manufacturing centers, you have those that have you know, better Pacific Ocean geography, those that have better Indian Ocean geography. So there are a, a lot of complementarities within ASEAN that give it a lot of momentum. In that particular way of thinking, do you think in terms of also trade routes and how the logistics networks actually operate within that landscape itself? Yeah, I mean, I actually think about it at two levels. One is the very large scale level of which you know you would the actual term for it is topographical engineering you know or, or geological interventions things like carving a new canal across the isthmus of kra in thailand you know as an alternative to the straits of malacca or climate change and the uh, trade routes of the arctic or the current expansion of the suez canal and panama canal I think about those very large-scale questions and what impact they'll have on trade routes because there's so much historical evidence of the rise and fall of city-states and ports as a result of these kinds of engineering interventions, much more so than any war or the other per se. Then I look at it at a much smaller level, which is which economic zones, which port cities, which technology clusters are doing the best job at bringing together foreign investment capital, the latest quality infrastructure, the most efficient services to place their economies on the map. And one obvious current example is the way in which the Manila in the Philippines has become such a key center for business process outsourcing through uh, everything from harnessing its English-speaking population to laying more fiber optic cables to recruiting foreign investors and so forth. You have a substantial amount of the Indian BPO industry you know, shifting to the Philippines. And how that happened is a story around infrastructure, technology, business models, special economic zones, sort of favorable investment environment and so forth. So to me... This competition for supply chains is a very crucial factor in shaping our in, in the economic prospects of very large countries. So I look at that very micro, small level as well. Do you see any interesting trends and innovations in Asia that might become a challenge to U.S. economy you know, in innovation, particularly, for example, the Shenzhen hardware ecosystem? So, you know, when you say challenge to the U.S. economy, I think that's a very binary yeah. uh, sort of choice. You know, we know, uh, although this is not something that most people in America understand, but when American multinational firms locate production overseas to save costs, they also generate more profits, which they do reinvest partially in the United States. And if they were not to be generating those jobs and welfare gains abroad, then their own American companies would have fewer customers around the world, which would be very problematic since about half of the Fortune 500 generates 50% or more of its revenue from outside the borders of the United States. So we have to look at these things in a much, much more nuanced way. So mm -hmm. is innovation clusters, is the rise of Xiaomi as a handset maker eating into the market share of Samsung and so forth and, and Apple 
you know, is that a threat to a particular company at a particular time? Yes. You know, on the other hand, does it introduce, you know, new competitive dynamics that take the industry in directions that foster more innovation by the incumbents? That is also true. So I don't think that we can uh, simply look at the issue at one point in time and say, uh-oh, you know, Shenzhen is going to be another Silicon Valley and suddenly the world's largest companies like a Microsoft or an Apple are going to go bust. Because we know that, yes, the world is full of disruption, but we also know that some of the most innovative companies are also large companies. It's not simply true that just because a company is large, it can no longer innovate. So we see a l way too much dynamism to, to be so binary about East versus West. From what I understand from what you're saying is that there's actually, the economies are actually thriving because there is this symbiotic relation between US and Asia in terms of import, export and manufacturing. But it's only the companies that are actually competing not the economies. Well, it's very well documented. So, you know, Bangalore, uh, uh, more than half of Bangalore software production uh, has been for American technology companies. So even though Bangalore is now producing a lot of indigenous software companies and, and coder, coding uh, operations and so forth, it still is an extremely important site of arbitrage and partnership for American firms. And so are Indians. So to, to add one more layer of complexity, yes, what you're saying is true. It is, in fact, either technological clusters or supply chain clusters that partner and compete with each other. In fact, Bangalore sees America as a partner, not as a competitor. Whereas on the whole, one might say, if you're simply looking at the terms of trade, you might see countries as being antagonistic, but clearly the clusters within them are aligned according to certain circuits. And circuit is a key word. It's the term that I borrow from some great sociologists who have uh, looked at globalization. It's a prominent theme in my next book. It's the fact that people who work in a certain sector of the economy across different countries, like currency traders, whether you're in New York or London or Singapore, you actually have more in common with each other than you do with the people who are in your own uh, country. And we see many such circuits forming, whether it's a circuit of farmers or, uh, like I say, hedge fund managers or doctors. You know, there are many circuits uh, in the world today, and I, I believe that studying those circuits gives you a better picture of who is allied with whom. And those alignments really don't track to national boundaries particularly clearly. I'm going to zoom it down to country-specific. So I'm going to start with China first. You have done a very interesting analysis in your TED Talk when you talk about how China exports its culture out there and an interesting perspective in terms of using the trade routes in Asia. Can you talk a little bit about that in greater detail? Sure. You know, I've been traveling to Central Asia in particular for about 15 plus years. So all of the countries that end in Stan, all of the former Soviet republics. So I've been observing what I call infrastructure alliances, which is the way in which China uses infrastructure, construction, and so forth to build symbiotic relationships with its poor 
uh, underdeveloped neighbors, such as the Central Asian countries. So the latest installment in this very long-term story is, of course, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIIB. The AIIB is, um, again, the sort of you know third or fourth generation of something China has been doing for a long time. So I've been looking at how this infrastructure is allowing China to access resources far, from far from its own borders, but also to smooth the flow of exports in such a way that allow it to more rapidly access markets such as Europe. So what we are seeing in slow motion is the compression of Eurasian space, you know, Eurasia is the world's largest landmass, and it used to take months to traverse it in the days of Genghis Khan. But today, of course, you can get on a high-speed train and you could go across Eurasia in a couple of days, or we're, we're getting closer to that scenario becoming true. To me, it goes without saying that that actually has a significant impact on how geopolitics will play out, but people aren't paying that close attention to it, even though it is unfolding you know, before our eyes. And in the past, there's only the Silk Road. Now there is a lot more routes out there through the internet and even through other means of transportation, through air, through ship as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the globalization of all modes of either uh, energy transport uh, or rather, you know, energy location or transportation or communications, these three large clusters, energy, transportation, communications, their globalization continues to be profound and accelerating and infrastructure is the vehicle by which those happen. So I, I study infrastructure very closely because to me, it's the pathway for power. That comes to my most the recent China stock exchange challenges. And given they have spent the last 20 years building that infrastructure, that also provides companies like Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent to shape the future. How is this kind of massive urbanization campaign changing China? Is it going to become in the next decade? Well, China is, of course, changing very quickly. That That is uh, you know, a, a cliche, of course. But urbanization is one of the major factors. One of the things I've pointed out in, in my own writing is that it would be almost possible to imagine Chinese e-commerce companies like Alibaba having such success were it not for the quality of Chinese infrastructure. So you simply could not have an Indian Alibaba at that scale because no Indian company could possibly make the delivery promises that Alibaba does. There's also the innovation in terms of the business model, the sort of internal marketplace as well that is very clever and novel and very uh, suited, suited to the business landscape and the financial needs uh, of its of the users of the Alibaba ecosystem. So all of those things are being done right. But I, I always rush to point out that the internet is an infrastructure and the companies that, that build upon it are leveraging that infrastructure. And where that infrastructure is not present, by you know logical extension, you simply could not have that kind of success. And if we switch it to India, now India is making the same move in constructing 100 new cities, you know, using mixed-use developments and special economic zones. And we also have private cities too, run by corporations. How do you see yes. their economies shaping in the next decade? I mean, I looked at it from the e-commerce side where there is a lot of new Indian e-commerce company with billion-dollar valuations and they are starting to create their own logistics routes with cash-on-delivery as well. How do you see that mm -hmm. happening? Well, India is a country where private investment in infrastructure has long been the norm. So it's quite the opposite of China, where public investment in infrastructure has provided the foundation for growth. Indian companies know 
know very well that the public sector is going to be very, very slow and lag behind in infrastructure provision. So they do it themselves. So that's sort of the, the norm in India. So I applaud the companies that are moving forward and doing that, especially because they're really making fixed capital investments inside India and really showing, you know, sort of the support for a national priority. That said, the Indian government is also now stepping up. The railway budget is $137 billion, which is obviously very significant. I think that's a very positive trend. You know, I just think that the execution in India is very slow. So we are all copying the words of Narendra Modi and talking about 100 smart cities. But we know very well that it will be a long time before India builds even one viable new city, let alone 100. And we can see now from the budget sessions of the Indian parliament and the, the, the debates going on that they're having a hard time passing the critical legislation around land acquisition and foreign investment. So in India, unfortunately, you know, living up to the hype is a very tedious process. Will those routes eventually be built? Such, such that all these cities will start to link up from that mapping analogy that you have used? Well, no, unfortunately, because India is quite held back by its geography, right? You know, it, is, you know, it, it has hostile neighbors and it has, uh, you, know, you know, the tallest mountains in the world surrounding it. So unfortunately, you know, it's going to be a very long road for India to have that kind of con connectivity outside its immediate uh, region. It's trying to do so with some gas pipelines with Myanmar and potentially even as far as to Iran. But I don't think that that's going to be an immediate sort of success story in terms of India's uh, connectivity. India will have to focus on its maritime connectivity in terms of importing resources and extending its influence through its navy. And that's something that has become a priority for India, but it will take a long time for it to further develop. Then that comes to where we are, Singapore and ASEAN. I mean, Singapore, I, as a Singaporean, it is an anomaly in Asia, with a city growing to about 55k GDP per capita, compared to Japan, which is 39, and US is 54k. I mean, in some sense, how did that happen? And why does every city out there wants to mimic Singapore? Of course, there are also drawbacks within the Singapore system itself. Yes, I think, you know, I think the Singapore story that has been, you know, told now many times and celebrated is, of course, about leadership, about focus, about infrastructure, um, you know, about um, a diversity national purpose. I think all of those things have been told and, and uh, you know, we can't uh, go through all of the, the, the reasons again here. But the question, of course, is will it continue to, to do so and, you know, will it continue to adapt? And what I've argued is that the culture of paranoia, you know, what I call strategic paranoia, is, you know, a very crucial uh, lesson, if you will. And I think that Singapore, even if some people feel that Singaporean citizens are very sort of coddled, I do believe that the government still has a bit of that paranoia left that will help it to continue to, to innovate and invest in uh, whether it's the big picture strategic things or the innovative and experimental things that will continue to find a way to succeed. What do you see our challenges for this city state for the next 50 years and how do we stay relevant against the types of globalization? How to stay relevant? Well, I mean, the thing is Singapore is already very globalized. It's one of the most globalized societies in the world. So I, I, it's not about uh, staying relevant because Singapore is very relevant in that regard. So I don't think that that's what Singapore has to struggle with. Singapore has to struggle with staying on top of the value chain amongst globalized societies. So developing the most complex products, 
uh, providing the most high value services. That is actually the challenge for Singapore. Singapore is already connected. So the challenge is really getting generating the, the highest returns from that connectivity. So you think that we should move beyond not just being a knowledge-based economy, but an innovative knowledge-based economy. Correct. And given that we are also part of the ASEAN, and you talk a lot about the ASEAN integrated economic framework, how does this ASEAN association is going to play an important role for the Asian century that you talk about? Yes, of course. I mean, you know, I mean, ASEAN is the backyard. It's a very important space. I'm a big believer that the 650, 700 million people of this region have the right conditions in terms of the youthfulness, the urbanization, the connectivity, you know, to really be a big growth driver in the world economy. So for for Singapore to be so, so co-located to that, is a very uh, sort of lucky set of conditions. Uh, so I believe that the this backyard of ASEAN plus India and its fast growth and youth can be a very important market for Singapore's future the way China has been. And do you, do you see that there will be, there is an economic treaty that's coming up for 2015? Do you think that will also help to integrate the economy like the way how the Eurozone is for Europe? Well, as I said, I, I don't think that we should compare apples and oranges. I don't think that, that ASEAN is going to become like a Eurozone. I don't think it will necessarily have a single currency or needs to have a single currency. Mm. So, you know, it doesn't doesn't really uh, bother me that regard. I would just like to see the integration continue through the development of those complementarities. That should be our measurement uh, of success, not whether or not it looks more or less like the European Union. Mm, that's probably true because every system evolves differently based on different kinds of initial conditions, I call that. So the yep. initial political and geographical reasons are very different from how the Eurozone will shape up as compared to Asia. Now, I'm possibly coming to the last bit, which is talking about your upcoming book, Mapping the Future. So I recall listening to your TED Talk, you explained a lot about the root causes of border conflicts worldwide and proposed some very interesting solutions to those issues. Since the conversation is Asia, what are the kind of ideas that you sort of would give to sort of resolve certain boundary conflicts that are happening in Asia, not drawing to any specific example itself? Well, I won't give away too much because it is the subject of my next book. So you'll all have to stay tuned uh, and, and, and wait to read it. But I do focus a lot on using infrastructure as a tool of sharing resources, whether it is uh, joint exploration of the South China Sea rather than fighting over the kind of uh, you know political demarcation uh, of the waters or whether it is you know sort of the ways in which uh, water sharing agreements are done the Mekong River, I look at also generational change, a deeper factor, sort of after how multiple generations, Malaysia and Singapore, have learned to be much more cooperative than they were 50 years ago. And the sort of second and third generation change that makes that possible and looking at how that can play out between India and Pakistan and other countries. So I look at a whole host of factors really to bring more connectivity and therefore stability to the region. In your new book, without giving up too much, because I'm going to get you back to talk about the book when the book is published, mm -hmm. <laughs> do you kind of want to share the main ideas that will come up from this book? Well, it really is, you know, about how connectivity is destiny. And that is uh, obviously overturning a very ancient adage that we all learn, which is that geography is destiny. So I look at how the world's infrastructure is really tying societies together in ways that create entirely new patterns of interaction. And it's about the shift from states to cities. It's about the, sh the shift from 
from governments to supply chains, and it's about the shift from war to tug of war, as I call it, in terms of what we compete over, which is competing over connectivity rather than over geography in the traditional sense. So those are some of the key highlights from the book. Okay, I'm looking forward to reading. I'm sure if I can, I might try to get a draft from you. Help my audience, Parag. How do they find you? Uh, Paragkanna.com. Your Twitter? Do you have any Twitter handle? At uh, Paragkanna. Mm-hmm. So there's there's other places. Do you have other pages where people can come and check you out? <laughs> uh, those are the main ones. Okay, and then they, I will also put a link to Factotum as well for you as well. Um, you can find me at bleongcwr at bernardleong.com or subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher. Please leave a ratings, one star to five star. Your feedback is always welcome. Uh, once again, Parag, it's great to have you on the show and I look forward to discuss geopolitical matters in Asia with you again. Thank you. Thank you, Bernard. Bye-bye.